When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast, and this is your host, David Kunzman. Today, we have Nancy November, a professor of musicology at the University of Auckland. And today, we'll be talking about the volume she edited called String Quartets in Beethoven's Europe, published in 2022 by Academic University Press. I hope you enjoy the interview. So we usually like to start the interview by asking our guests, uh, how do they come to write uh, their current work? So uh, how do you come to write, uh, how do you come to edit string quartets in Beethoven's Europe? Yeah, it started with a conference. Um, the conference was held at the University of Auckland um, in the lockdown of 2021. And um, we put together an online conference for people all over the world. And that was, of course, fully possible. Um, the only tricky part was getting the right time of day, and we didn't always manage to do that. But we had speakers um, on the string quartet from Germany, from Canada, from US, um, a number, quite a number from New Zealand, um, from England, and I think that's about it, actually, so not quite all over the world, but certainly a wide range of time zones. And we had asynchronous discussion and posting um, comments on papers beforehand. And so by the time we'd finished the conference, everybody had um, quite a lot of feedback, both through the online conference itself and through these asynchronous discussions. And we decided that it was quite a cohesive set of papers on the string quartets in, in the time of Beethoven um, and that it would make a good book. And that's how it all started. So just so just starting out with the basics uh, for our listeners, uh, what is a string quartet? And could you elaborate, like, the history of the genre? The string quartet is probably one of the most prestigious genres of Western music in the period around 1800. It was born, if you like, in the mid 
um, 18th century. And traditionally, Haydn, Joseph Haydn, who lived from 1732 to 1809, is considered as the father of the string quartet. And believe me, that that language is has been actually used in the scholarship. So this this concept of genre birth and <laughs> fathering, if you like. Um, um, and so that um, genre then rose to prominence, particularly with the string quartets of Haydn. His earliest quartets were written in 1760 um, and 1750s as well. And in terms of why, what it is and why that genre, it is um, a four-part ensemble for two violins, viola and cello. And the story goes that Haydn was writing the, um, had to write some music for um, the the pleasure of a, a nobleman who had retreated to the country from Vienna in the summer where just as today <laughs> the summers are very hot um, or used to be in the, in the 18th century as well. And so lots of the Viennese wealthy people used to go to their summer residences. And so Haydn um, wrote for this particular ensemble because it were, they were present there. The two violins, viola and cello, were easy to get together. And um, although there had been works composed before that for two violins, viola and cello, violin, um, Haydn was one of the first to compose a whole lot of these string quartets, 74 in total, and and make them into a really popular genre. Um, he his, his works are quite tricky um, to perform, the earlier ones less so, but by the time of the 1780s he'd really got quite good at composing in this genre. And so when I say quite fun to perform, um, the later Haydn quartets are more like something that you would have heard professionals play. And so there was a whole load of other composers in Europe around this time who um, started to compose string quartets as well. And particularly in Paris, there was a genre called the Conchaton Quartet, which had a solo violin, which was quite difficult. And then the second violin, viola and cello parts were less difficult. And so those could be played and performed by amateurs. So I think it would be best to focus on the essay that you contributed for the volume, uh, essay two entitled The Middle Period String Quartets of Spohr and Beethoven. At the beginning of the uh, essay, you um, you give an account of uh, Wilhelm Reil uh, in his account of string quartet culture at that time, and he used the terms quartet friends that specified three different groups of quartet performers and listeners, amateurs, virtuosos, and connoisseurs. Could you elaborate on these three different groups and uh, how they differed in their their interrelation between each other? Sure, and I've already started to talk about two of those um, with your previous question. So I'd mentioned that the Haydn string quartets had become quite tricky by the later quartets and the kinds of things that professionals um, played versus some of the Parisian quartets, say, for example, those by 
Pleyel, Cambini, um, and, uh, and Jardin, and a number of other composers in and around Vienna as well, um, including Mozart, the, the young Mozart, um, composed string quartets that were within the reach of the amateur, and then later on they became more within the reach of professionals. And the string quartet in Vienna um, that grew up, that um, became established in the time of Mozart and Haydn and Beethoven is what uh, uh, some of them <laughs> would be what I would call the connoisseur quartets. So they were really designed for listeners who enjoyed listening to complex interacting part, a complex texture involving four interacting parts versus the one that I had just described to you before where we have one part that's the melody and the others are essentially accompaniment. There were other string quartets composed in that kind of genre, what I've a subgenre if you like, the amateur quartet um, that involved passing a melodic idea, a nice theme around between the four voices so that one voice would start and then another second violin might imitate first violin and then viola and cello might chip in and that was a very conversational style that wasn't too difficult and that is the quattro concerton that developed in Paris in particular. So that leaves us with one more because I've mentioned two there, a connoisseur quartet with complex interacting parts, an amateur quartet with either melody plus accompaniment or these passing around a melodic idea. And then the other genre, subgenre that I talk about or that we talk about in the book, all of us, I think well, most of us, um, I have called the virtuoso quartet. And that came to into being around about 1800 with the rise of the French violin school, in particular people like Bayer, Rode and Kreutzer um, and Viotti. Um, and those are the surnames um, of Pierre Bayot is the first name and Rodolphe Kreutzer. Um, those people were very talented violin players and so their string quartets because they were also composers um, often had a very showy first violin line that could be performed you know and in in public and an accompaniment that wasn't again wasn't too too interesting really I won't say that it wasn't technically challenging but the all of the interest with those quartets lay in the very showy first violin that was you know high register very fast lots of chords and trills and ornaments and other things like that so in your title of the essay um two figures are mentioned beethoven and spohr probably everyone's heard of beethoven but who was lewis spohr yeah, he's not so well known and particularly not um, for his string quartets, I suppose. He was one of these violinists um, who who studied um, with a number of different people and certainly um, worked very closely with the French violin school performers and he was a German composer. Um, he travelled widely and, and performed in public but also in salons um and so he um 
was one of the foremost German violinists of his day and composed himself a whole lot of violin music, um, including string quartets. Um, he actually composed quite, quite a number of string quartets, but I suppose one of the reasons that they're not so well known today is that he didn't actually publish all of them. And another reason that they're not so well known today is that a number of them fall into the category of works for amateur, particularly the later ones, actually, which is a bit different to what I'd been describing for Haydn and Mozart, where the, and definitely for Beethoven, where the later we go, the more difficult the works get. For Spohr, he was really interested in composing works that would be used directly with the people that he knew, including in these salons where... Um, where the works got performed. But he composed, as I say at the very end of my essay, in all three of these subgenres. So I've mentioned that he was a touring virtuoso and he certainly would have performed his own virtuoso string quartets. And at the end of his life, he composed the amateur style quartets that I'd mentioned. And the period of interest to me in this particular article in this particular chapter is the middle period where he composed works that um, could be described as connoisseur quartets, so the third type. So one thing you mentioned in your answer was uh, publishing, which I found pretty interesting. What was the publishing culture like? Did they have anything like copyright laws? Like, did that determine uh, what a string quartet canon would, would be? Well, that's a super interesting question, and you've got part of the answer there definitely with its ability, the publishing cultures, the print culture's ability to um, participate in canon formation. Very definitely that was the case. So in Spohr's Germany and in Beethoven's Vienna, Beethoven's you know Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, um, the publishing industry was booming around 1800 and um, the music public publishing industry uh, had in Vienna just got going around just in the 1880s, 1890s, but in Germany it had been quite long-standing. And so the by the time we get these, these string quartets that were so, so popular and partly because they appealed to connoisseurs, amateurs and people who wanted to watch virtuosos and virtuosos themselves, um, the string quartet sort of helped with this um, this booming um, or blossoming of, of music publishing in Vienna in particular where it was just, just getting off the ground. Um, and so it, you could, you know, really for the first time in um, Vienna's history anyway, you, as a composer, you could get your works um, performed, you could get hold of other people's music in published form instead of obtaining copies. And you could, if you were Haydn, get, and Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven and these other famous composers, you could get your works um, disseminated much more widely than had been um, possible before this big boom in, in publication. So it was really, really important um, in, in um, creating the, the canon and, and getting it disseminated to people. Um, 
why would publishing be <laughs> possible, be uh, an instrument of canon formation? Well, if you look at these publications, for example, if we just take Haydn's, who we've already talked about, um, they're um, especially the later ones. They're they're beautifully decor- decorative title pages for some of them, um, showing sort of garlands and wreaths and you know um, laurel <laughs> laurel wreaths and that kind of thing, sort of emblems of success and honor. And sometimes there are music pages as well, um, and pillars, sort of cr- classical um, allusions on these frontispieces, on these title pages, um, that suggest kind of the status of the genre, and in turn build it up, <laughs> um, and help the buyer to know that what they're buying is a quality product. They also use typographical tricks as well, like, you know, um, shadow and outline and that sort of thing with the putting the composer name in in very prominent position and then the title string quartet as well to show that that genre is, you know, has high status. So it's partly the market and it's partly the critics' commentary on performances and um, commentary on new new editions that are coming out that that makes this genre so prominent around this time, but it's also equally on the part of the publisher, their marketing and the the ploys that they use to create the product to create the quality, um, which is then perceived as such by the market. So it's quite an interesting. Um, two or really three way because we have the composers as well. Um, um, market situation at this point. We can definitely, in Vienna, we can talk about the emerging market economy in the early 19th century for music. So getting back to the two figures in the uh, in the essay, Spohr and Beethoven, you, met, uh, you mentioned that uh, this middle period of Spohr, he was composing in the Connoisseur School. What was the relation between Beethoven and Spohr? Did they know each other? Were they rivals? Were there were they more friendly? Uh, what what was their relation? Um, they coexisted and they briefly overlapped when Spohr was in Vienna in the eighteen teens, and so um, apparently there was mutual admiration. Um, and they it wasn't as if Spohr was a pupil of Beethoven or anything, but as we just mentioned, the publishing industry meant that as soon as a Beethoven string quartet was ready and released, Spohr would have been able to get hold of it. And we know from accounts that Spohr um, played Beethoven's earliest quartets, the Opus 18, which were composed around 1800, and Spohr himself... Um, enjoyed playing those works, but he knew that the audiences didn't necessarily enjoy them because even though today we think of those quartets as relatively simple, the Opus 18 of Beethoven, to audiences in those days, they were already complex music. And that's, that is the general story about Beethoven and the reception of Beethoven in his era was that he was uh, his music was understood as being pretty much from the get-go um, quite complicated. And certainly the middle period quartets of Beethoven, which were the ones that I compared to the middle period quartets of Spohr, um, are in this category of 
having been understood by critics and evidently by performers as really quite difficult to perform. Um, so Spohr would have known the middle period quartets of Beethoven, as I say in my um, in my chapter. They, the, the middle period quartets of Beethoven, were composed between 1806 and 1810 or thereabouts. It's actually a little bit difficult to know where it ends. Um, but um, so Spohr would have, by the time he was composing his middle period quartets, which is in the later 18-teens, um, he would have been quite familiar with the works of Beethoven, those other string quartets. Now, um, in terms of uh, comparing the two string quartets, it's not a question of direct borrowing. So you might think, well, Beethoven is the more famous of the two and Spohr is somebody, as you just mentioned before, that we really, we really don't know that name very well today unless you're in music or unless you're a violinist. Um, and so perhaps, and since Spohr's middle period came after Beethoven's, perhaps he copied Beethoven or perhaps he even, um, you know, drew on some material and elaborated on it. But really my argument isn't that at all because I think that's not clear from from what you see. But rather that um, Spohr was uh, fully, you know, from from playing and, you know, being an insider on Beethoven's string quartets through performance, um, had fully internalised what Beethoven's achievements were in the middle period with expanding forms and and making the the music um, much more complex for all four parts. Um, And Spohr drew on that in his middle period string quartets. Um, But another thing that both composers do in these works, so Beethoven's middle period and Spohr's middle period, is that they both draw on um, the genre that was incredibly popular Europe-wide. And that genre was not the string quartet, although it was pretty popular, as I've mentioned, but instead it was opera and vocal music in general. And so I have a section in my in my essay where I talk about how both of those composers were, um, they weren't just wannabe opera composers, they did actually both of them compose operas. We, we, we know that Beethoven composed a grand total of one opera, <laughs> Fidelio, and also that he really wanted to be an opera composer and that would have been a career choice of his in the early 1800s. It was really the career choice for a budding composer around this time period because it was such good money and so popular. And you could do a lot with opera, with the singers and with the the drama and the libretti. Um, and so my argument really briefly anyway in the middle of that essay is that, that both composers were in the thrall of opera and they integrated that into their instrumental music and in particular into these middle period quartets. So I guess my next question is uh, after the after their middle period, how did these composers diverge, especially with Beethoven in his in his late in his late string quartets? Um, did Spohr ever get a chance to listen to them, and what did he think of them? Um, we don't know what Spohr thought of Beethoven's 
um, late quartets, but we do know what everybody else, well, we know what the general feeling was. Um, in answer to the first part of your question, how did they, they diverge? Well, they diverged completely in terms of these subgenres. Um, and as I've already mentioned, in the later um, phase, Spohr tended to write works that were more within the reach of an amateur, um, could be possibly performed in the home by talented amateurs versus Beethoven who went in completely the opposite direction and produced works that even the professionals found really difficult. Um, and one of the violinists that worked with Beethoven actually said in, in one of Beethoven's little conversation books, I'll explain that word in a minute, um, we don't rehearse the quartets of Haydn and Mozart or we only rehearse your string quartets, Beethoven. Um, Haydn and Mozart go better unrehearsed. And the implication there is that, well, it's straightforward, that they were really difficult and they were such such challenges had no violinist seen before in that genre or indeed in, you know, many other genres. So they were re- it's just as music, they were tricky. Um, and as four-part music for the four players to stay together, in some cases over very long stretches of really difficult music, um, without being able to tune their instruments, because in one of the late quartets, the C-sharp minor quartet, there are no breaks between the seven different parts of the string quartet. Um, So another comment in the conversation books, and I promise I'll let you know what that is in a minute, um, says you know, there are no movement breaks, so where are we going to tune, (laughs) question mark. So what are these conversation books? They are little memo books in which which contain questions for Beethoven, who after 1818 was pretty much um, too deaf to be able to understand people's questions. So from around that time, he has these little notebooks where people write half of the conversation. And then we have to assume that Beethoven answered verbally. And sometimes he didn't answer verbally. Sometimes he answered by writing down the answer in the conversation book. But mostly they're one half of the conversation from people to Beethoven. So we get these great little nuggets. Um, Yeah, so Spohr had left Vienna by this stage and I'm not aware of any comments on the middle period, on the late quartets. There are comments on Opus 74 and Opus 18. But what did everybody else say about them? Well, they were really divided, but the general gist I have already hinted was that this music was just really difficult and in some instances just way people thought it was way too difficult which essays in this volume i guess surprised you or found or you found pretty interesting that you didn't i guess have foresight of uh, all of the essays are very interesting to me um I've done a lot of research ever since my PhD in in string quartets, so um, anything to do with the subject interests me personally. I suppose um, for readers, uh, there are two that I might mention. Um, One is by actually a former student at the University of Auckland who's now himself doing a PhD, and it's about Jardin's string quartets, and that's a composer that I did mention right at the beginning of this interview. 
And that talks a little bit about salon culture and how these string quartets um, fit into Parisian concert life around about this time. Uh, sorry, par- Parisian salon life, also concert life. Um, so that's one I definitely recommend. It, it talks a little bit about a topic that's very um, hot in musicology at the moment, uh, sort of sonic culture and how the sound world influenced the musical world. So that one was is is really very interesting, I think, even for people who don't have a, a big knowledge of this genre. And then the final essay by a colleague of mine in Germany, Christian Speck, um, on a uh, an almanac. Uh, so it's a sort of a, it's a, a published book by two uh, writers, German writers, um, who discuss music um, around the early 19th century. And he, it, it contains no musical analysis. So, again, for people who are just interested in um, musical culture around this time, this is another one that's really fascinating. And it talks about how, you know, we mentioned a little earlier about canon formation. It talks about how Beethoven figured alongside other composers in the popular and public estimation of music around this time. And that's a little bit surprising, I think, um, because, of course, today Beethoven is this just towering figure in this era of Western classical music versus all of these other names of composers that were extremely popular at the time. So another one to have a look at. So we usually like to end our end our interviews with asking our guests uh, if they're working on any working on anything uh, right now or any future projects. Oh yes, I am, and I think I have just hinted at this before um, in mentioning the interest in opera at this time. And so right now, I'm writing a book on. Um, arrangements for uh, arrangements of opera for all sorts of different uh, combinations of instruments in Vienna in the late 18th and early 19th century. And it's going to be entitled something like um, Opera in the Home from Mozart to Rossini. So that should be appearing next year with Cambridge University Press. So I think that's all the time we have for today. Uh, Nancy November, thank you for the interview. Thanks a lot, David.